you really mustn't, darling. I... What's up, everybody? Thanks for listening to Season 1, Episode 12 of Can I Comment? My name is Michael, and normally I'm here with my friends Jake and James, but over the next few weeks, we're going to do something a little bit different. We are going to go into some conversations that we've had over the last couple of weeks with some guests. So we're going to bring some guests on the podcast for the first time, and it's going to be such a fun experience. The conversations we had were so rich and uh, so helpful. So, hey, before we go any further, though, do us a huge favor, and if you're listening to this podcast today, whether it be on iTunes, whether it be on Spotify, on YouTube, do us a favor. Would you subscribe? Would you like it? Would you rate it? Would you share it? It goes such a long way in helping us get the word out. Well, hey, listen, let's get into this conversation. Our guest today is Nathan Finocchio. Nathan is the founder of Theos U and Theos Seminary. He is a former teaching pastor, and he is the author of a book called Hearing God. And uh, man, we just had such a great conversation with Nathan around uh, progressive Christianity, deconstruction, and then we jump into Christian nationalism, which I know Nathan has been really trying to define as this word has gotten uh, just so popular in culture. It's been being thrown around uh, by all different kinds of people. So we wanted to do our best to define what is Christian nationalism and then have a conversation around that. So, hey, listen, enjoy the interview with Nathan, and we will see you right back here next week. Nathan, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. We're so, so excited to have you here. We, we talked to your brother yesterday. Oh, did, did you really? Yeah, yeah it's terrific. About progressive Christianity and uh, deconstruction. deconstruction. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, although the first like 30 minutes of the conversation ended up actually being a discussion on theological points. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. That's Gabriel. It was. It was. <laughs> Once he gets going. Man, you just got to let it happen, you know? <laughs> oh, dude. Yeah. Believe me, I, I know how to handle them. <laughs> So we are, um, we're going to talk about Christian nationalism, um, okay. but first, why don't you just tell us a bit about Diashu? You, you, yeah. um, you were a pastor, teaching pastor, worship pastor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the last few years, you've, how long ago has it been since you've, since you launched Diashu? Uh, so I left New York city three years ago this November and, um, and then the, the next year after I had left, I left in, in, in November, we launched Theos U of the following August. Um, so this August, it'll be two years. Um, yeah, so uh, we basically, I, I don't know um, where to begin except that... Uh, I was teaching in New York and I was writing courses. I'd written 14 of them and I was teaching just Bible stuff, really kind of basic undergrad Bible stuff, the book of Romans, uh, surveys, uh, basic doctrine, ecclesiology, stuff like that. And um, being in New York City and, uh, and what I mean by that is it's a lot of young uh, highly, uh, highly socially, politically, culturally aware mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that young people 
and they're all just walking on eggshells and playing a chess game constantly mm-hmm. um, with Christianity and just, you know, just so conscious <laughs> of everything right. that's happening uh, politically. The, the nature of my teaching began to take on that shape because the questions that we would get. So basically I'd teach for a couple hours and then I'd have a, a Q&A mm-hmm. and the Q&A was like it, it, could, it could go on forever. The, the, the questions were always uh, apologetic in their nature. Right. And, and then there'd be lineups outside of the door, you know, people trying to just ask follow up questions. And so because of that, I began to make the content a little bit more uh, to enculturate it as everything is like every, we, all, all material is enculturated, mm-hmm. you know, like the way that preachers preached a hundred years ago was enculturated and a hundred years before that it was enculturated and you're using the same text and you're teaching the same biblical principles, but you're obviously enculturating it uh, for your audience, whatever. So, um, so I don't know if, if uh, I think all theology sort of needs an apologetic bent to it, mm-hmm. but particularly young people, you know, that's because I, I think that there is a generational, I posted something by Mark Driscoll today that I thought was really profound. And it's, yes, is that that video of him gener- generate? Uh, I sent that yeah. to you. The mass yeah. apostasy. Man, that yeah. was, that was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody, Co- you know, like. Cosign. Totally. So you know how like everybody, when you go up, like um, there's a lot of of theological boys who cry wolf. So, and and it, it it's kind of like when you call everything a racist, it takes away like the actual meaning mm-hmm. or when r- real racism happens, like it cheapens racism. Yep. Um. So, or when you call everything oppressive it cheapens actual oppression. Right. And so, um, so long story short, like I grew up in a, in a movement, a church movement that everything, like all churches were in apostasy. You know what I mean? Everybody was in apostasy and that's just, that's just not Your church was the only one getting it right. Yeah, exactly. You know, like we're the only ones that are enlightened and the world is sliding into apostasy and, you know, da, 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 da. Anyways, long story short. So, uh, we'd have these teachings on the drift, the drift. Like there's a generational drift and generations, you know, and what you allow in this generation, it'll, it'll, you know, right. it'll be a larger manifestation. You know, it's kind of like, um, and, and they've used the analogy, and this is like actually a helpful analogy in some respects. But for example, the analogy of if you uh, are aiming at a target and you fire a pistol at a target 10 feet away and you miss by half an inch, mm-hmm. If you go out another 10 feet, you will have missed a full inch. If you go out another 10 feet, you will have missed more. And it's so increasingly, the increasing distance, the, the further the miss, et cetera. And so, so anyways, long story short, um, I grew up that way. And so I don't, I don't like it when we throw around words like apostasy or heretic yep. or, you know, like I, I think that we shouldn't be cavalier in just being in dismissing people or, you know, et cetera. But, but there are times and there are places when we identify what is happening. And so I, I firmly agree with uh, Mark Driscoll in that there, and, and we've seen this in church history. In church history, there have been generational apostasies. Wow. That has happened in church mm-hmm. history where, you know, the, 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 um, the, you know, the culture will 
there will be some sort of happening, some historic thing or some belief that's popular at the time, and there will be a massive falling away. Mm-hmm. And that has, and then there will be maybe the next generation or a generation down, there will be a revival and a massive return to the Lord. And 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 you know the church, you know, cult is always uh, culture is always downwind from cult, and so uh, you know the, the the church is red hot, and the culture begins to change, and there's more you know, whatever, there's more propriety or this reflected in society and its values, et cetera. And then there will be, like, once again, there'll be another apostasy. So these things happen and it's right. not like apostasies haven't happened. And right. it's not like there's one great big apostasy and that's the only thing that's going to happen. Right. You know, kind of like in an eschatological fever where people are like, oh, there's, you know, there's going to be a great falling away. Well, right. there are great falling aways. There's been, you know, there's been uh, many generations since that scripture has been written, and that scripture is both immediate and it's eschatological. Exactly. Um, you know. So, anyways, long story short, I think that we are absolutely on the precipice of another great falling away, um, a great apostasy, and like the stars are all ideologically aligned. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we've been Jake, we, you and I have been kind of reading through a. Uh, a number of, of books, um, you know, the last couple of years, um, just on liberalism and, Mm -hmm. um, the rugged individualism and, and secularism and liberal and, and how these things all work and how these things are basically creating a perfect storm, um, for pastors, you know, where it's like, you know, if you cross somebody's will, you're abusive. Mm-hmm. psychologically you're spiritually abusive all of these different things and so yep. um people can't tell between what is reality mm-hmm. with things that have actually happened yep um and their interpretation of events mm-hmm. um so anyways all that to say i think that that's all setting up for a great apostasy now um um the reason why I began to create Theos U and why I began and Theos U takes the form that it does is because Gabe and I having a hand on the pulse of culture and sort of watching this and then reading guys like G.K. Chesterton, mm-hmm. who there were cultural drifts that were happening. There were apostasies that were happening in his day. Mm-hmm. And so we're reading it. Like you can read Chesterton and you can read Orthodox, uh, Orthodoxy and Heretics and even and Lewis, and you're going, oh my God, like this sounds familiar. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's like this is this is exactly what he's his diagnosis is a, is is a, an exact diagnosis, and his prescription is an exact prescription for the fix of it. And this is just absolutely unbelievable. Mm. And you begin to realize that, um, you know, like Chesterton says, there are no new heresies; there's just old heresies that are recycled. And right. as you begin to study church history, um, you know, you begin, this is, this is why David, David uh, Campbell's, uh, he's doing a critique of, of somewhat of a, um, comparatively to, to mine, uh, more of a long form critique of, of, of critical theory, but his is like from the lens of church history. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that to say, yeah, like, so, so, so we have this apologetic nature. So Thas you is, um, it's theological training. Mm-hmm. And at the, at, the, at the end of it, it's a Bible college, okay, for fourteen dollars a month. There's mm-hmm. no reading, there's no there's no mm-hmm. assignments, you know, whatever. Um, but our bent is apologetic, um, and from and and we have an epistemology that is perhaps unique in that we are trying to consider 
um, historic Christian orthodoxy, what the church has, J.K. Chesterton said that tradition is the democracy of the dead. And so what has the church voted on? That's so good. Mm-hmm. What do yeah. they, what do they believe in? Is that important? And how should that weigh in? And how do, and so we're trying to like bring conversations back to epistemologies because that's where, that's where the rubber's hitting the road. And that's where there's major disagreements. I'm about to do a podcast with a young woman. Uh, she has an Instagram. I think it's called God is gray. And, um, yeah, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen her. I've seen that Instagram. Yeah. Just really polite reached out to me and just wanted to follow up on a lot of questions because I'm like public enemy number one for her following. Yes. For many people. I was going to ask, did you, did you expect that? I mean, did you expect there to be a whole Instagram subculture that literally looks at you like the the Christian version of Osama bin Laden? I mean, it is like... (laughs) I, I'll repost something from you and I'll have someone be, I think I actually sent you the screenshot. Someone was like, you know, Nathan's a white supremacist totally. and he preaches white supremacist theology. Like, were you expecting, right? Were you expecting that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I was. And I think that my wife's worst fears have been confirmed. <laughs> as if you, if, if your influence grows, then you're, you're, uh, you know, so does your who, target. Exactly. So yeah. it's like, and I'm not, I'm not backing down. I'm, I'm getting louder, you know, yep. so. We've um, noticed. The, yes. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. So like, you know, and we love it. Going you're in saying, on you're saying things that pastors all across America are like, oh man, They're someone finally has the courage mm-hmm. to come out and say this mm-hmm. in the way we've all been wanting to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to say yeah. it. But, I, but bro, I think that honestly, I think that, um, I sense, and I'm filled with hope because I, and I'm honestly, um, I'm I'm sensing more and it's it's not like guys that are like privately DMing me more and more people uh, because, because what what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to with SU instead of address things peripheral things um, so so what a, one of Chesterton's big I I love Chesterton I quote Chesterton because I think he's bright but one of his uh, one of the things I learned from him was like you you never you never talk, uh, address peripheral things first you talk about first principles so. Where is the first place that we disagree on? And one of the things that I'm really passionate about is equipping pastors and leaders to uh, to address the first principle stuff. So when you address first principles, then all of the peripherals work themselves out. So like you don't have to um, you don't have to address uh, racism or sexism or ableism or you know, body positivity, whatever, whatever it is, it's a hot button issue, human sexuality, whatever, when you're teaching people and you're addressing epistemologies, you know, right. you're going, well, this is how we discover truth. This is why we believe what, what the Bible says, because this is how we read it. We read it in this, in this spirit. And these are the things, these are our presuppositions about the scriptures, et cetera. So um, more and more, I'm seeing more and more guys going, look, I, I'd get murdered if I addressed, if I said this, but if right. I say this, Right. That's going to lead people to the right conclusion. So it's it's like giving a man a fish versus teaching a man a fish. And so I'm starting to see way more pastors going, man, I'm, I can do this and becoming fearless because it's like, like our detractors are getting more and more vociferous as well. So it's mm-hmm. like we, we're at a we're at a a, a a place right now in culture and in society and in history where like fortune favors the bold baby like you mm-hmm. i know so many friends and, and i think that this is a, you know 
guys, I'm, I'm trailing off here, and this is a bit of a tributary, but um, I have a friend in New York City who had like 20 people in his church at the beginning of the pandemic. And he was like, you know, like, this isn't working. And, you know, I obviously don't know what the heck I'm doing. And um, so he's just like, you know, screw it. I'm just going to preach whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> and his, his church is blown up. And, yeah. And, and then there's people that are trying to, you know, you've grown this huge audience based on, on neutrality. Okay. Right. Like, so if I just preach a neutral message and never yeah. take any positions, yeah. that, cause that worked in the nineties and the early two thousands, you know, that, like, that worked two years ago. Oh, right. Oh, a thousand percent. It worked two years. Oh, totally. So, but that is, but what happens is you build these, you build these, uh, you know, a non-positional experience mm -hmm. and then you're trying to consolidate power during the last year that, People are demanding responses and answers and positions. Like, so I, I, I recently was asked by a pastor, if I said his, his name, you'd know him and massively influential church globally to help write uh, with their team five position papers. Who wow. writes position papers wow. anymore, right? Like, and this church is like not the kind of church where you're going, you know, wow, they should write you know, like it's, it's just not, they would never do that. Mm -hmm. But I think that they, once again, they have a hand on the pulse. They're going, people are asking questions. They're demanding answers. And that's the area that we're living in. So all that to say, that's kind of like, what, that's what I love to do. I love to uh, bring clarity. I, I'm not trying to be divisive. I'm intentionally, right. I'm not trying to be inflammatory intentionally. I'm just trying to go, um, what is, what are gospel solutions to the problems in our world? So um, racism is evil. Okay. 100%. Racism, I'm with you. Um, racism can be systemic. Absolutely, it can. Uh, racism is um, breaks the heart of God. It's demonic. It's sinful. It's, you know, da, da, da. I'm with you, okay? That's fine. Yep. Mm -hmm. So what are the, but what are the gospel solutions? Because the exactly. Bible says that the man of God, uh, the scriptures, you know, cause the man of God to be complete and lack nothing. Mm -hmm. And I believe that, that, that the Bible has all things that are pertaining to life. And that, that the, the way to run your church is private letters to Timothy. I don't think that the yep. gospel um, gospel is 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 the miracle for the church who is totally divided. Um, you know, in the ancient world, slaves and masters going to church together, uh, barbarians and Scythians and Greeks and Jews. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, like you know, going to church together and building a community um, when these people should have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But somehow right. they have this, the the love of the, of the spirit and the bond of peace. So how does that work? So I'm convinced that the gospel is the cure, and it is the wisdom of God on display um, in a church that is um, preaching the gospel and living out the gospel. So th that would, if that makes me a white supremacist, <laughs> then I, I guess I'm a white supremacist. You know, like, and I just have to live with with I, I if and if. If the gospel makes me and, and Paul's, you know, Paul's recommendations on on um, on gender roles makes me homophobic or makes it whatever you want to call me, yep. um, then then that's fine. Uh, I'll just take a page from uh, my my hero, Athanasius, who who you know stood up against Arianism in the early church, who's a short black uh, theologian from northern Africa. 
Mm-hmm. And he died having been excommunicated about four or five times from the empire. And on his gravestone was written Contramunda, Mathanatius against the world. So, you know, like, if it, like, but it's, it's getting to the point where I, I have, like, what am I called to? I'm called to be a teacher of the, of the gospel and I'm called to be faithful to the scriptures and, and prescribe gospel solutions to the problems of the world. And I think you're you're touching on something really important there in the sense, you know, you reference Athanasius. And uh, one of the things that I've seen you and Gabe and TSU in general be so vocal about is uh, your commitment is to teach Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. And uh, you're not saying anything new. <laughs> you're, right. you're being you're being historically uh, Christian. Yeah, I'm a copycat. I and have it comes, zero good ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and and it comes back to the the notion of um, uh, epistemology. And I, I guess like another way to say it would be what authority are we appealing to here? Um, because the 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 battleground is is one of uh, uh, what authority we're appealing to. And we appeal to the authority of the scripture. Exactly. Um, and uh, this is not like an interdenominational debate right now this is this is uh this is debate with what i consider to be another religion especially when when people are trying to import these progressive views into something that they're calling christianity um and as part of their process it includes being very open about the fact that they do not view the scriptures with the same uh authority that we do and so coming back to your point on first principles we're not we're not we're talking about peripheral things a lot of the time. Right. And we argue about peripheral things. Yeah. But the reason we disagree about peripheral things is because we believe that the gospel, um, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is, and and everything that that entails is the answer to uh, all of humanity's issues and woes and, and sins. Right. That's I'm with you. That's exactly it. Is uh, I'm not... I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, my, my friend John Adams, who teaches at TheosU, uh, said something really beautiful. He teaches our, our church history courses, and um, he's right now he's doing a he's writing a course on C.S. Lewis, and it's going to mm-hmm. be insane because John's just he's impeccable. Um, but he said something recently, and just it kind of encapsulated my epistemological feeling, or or one of them, um, because uh, Gabe and I would probably call ourselves prima scriptura. Um, where we don't believe that the, the, the scriptures are the only um, source of authority, but they are a source of authority, um, the, the primary source of authority, rather. Uh, right. And the reason why we would make that distinction between sola and prima is because the scriptures need to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the Protestants you know, cried sola scriptura um, because they were appealing to a church that you know, had had lacked any sort of self consciousness or self. Um, you know, they're they're calling the church back to, hey, remember when like the Bible was the most important thing and we made things out of the Bible? So that was their response mm-hmm. to a corrupt organization at the time, mm-hmm. uh, or a bad epistemology. Um, but all that to say, you know, uh, John uh, John said this. He goes, um, the older I get. Uh, the less likely I am to agree with any doctrine that has not been uh, historically held by the yeah. majority of Christians over time. 
Yep. And he just said, because I don't trust myself. Yeah. Um, and that's that's kind of where I'm at. So I'm not saying we should all be Catholic. I'm not saying that we should all be Eastern Orthodox. What I'm saying is we have to include in our um, in our hermeneutical uh, cake recipe. I, I do this like hermeneutical cake um, thing. Um, and I, I showed people, you know, five different ingredients is, and, you know, and I, I, these are I use to try to create a doctrine. And one of them has to be um, a consideration for how uh, historic Christianity treated this, this passage. Okay. Of what did the church fathers say about it? Exactly. What did the early Christians say about it? Totally. Pass it through, pass it through the patristics, mm-hmm. pass it through, you know, the time of the councils, mm-hmm. pass it through medieval theology, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like Aquinas, mm-hmm. pass it through the reformers, mm-hmm. um, you know, Luther and Calvin and prominent figures as such. Um, and, and then s- see what comes out on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally um, on the really important stuff, mm-hmm. we're going to find agreement. Let's, let's, uh, play devil's advocate there for a second, because I think one of the things that Mike and I have been noticing is that a lot of the uh, uh, deconstructionists, deconstructionists, deconstructionalists. I don't know. What did Gabe call them yesterday? Van vandals. Vandals. <laughs> <laughs> the vandals. That is so good. Um, I like the historic vandals that sacked yeah. Rome. <laughs> no, no, no. Like they like vandalism. <laughs> Maybe that's the wrong word. Um, no, not, I mean. Not, Right, like vandals. The vandals were uh, were a people. Uh, yeah, they were. It was a people. It was an ethnic group that sacked Rome, and yeah, that's I'd, where the term vandalism comes from. Got it. Well, I think mm. he was maybe uh, picking up on the um, the term itself, vandalism. <laughs> but um, in any case, one of the things that we've been uh, noticing in the deconstruction movement has been this kind of appeal to uh, almost a new reformation. Um, and they've, you know, they've been right. diligent about studying the Bible and they've been reading and they've been learning. <laughs> That's very and, gen- Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, what, what do you say? Because obviously the suggestion there is then, well, then we just become another movement of people that the scripture should be passed through in order to be better understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So, so let's compare the vandals to the reformers for a second here. So the reformers, um, the reformers, number one, they never thought that, that there was another church in like Luther never thought to himself at any moment. Luther was a bit different than Calvin, but Luther never like, it took him like 20 years to start, you know, doing something different, you know? So he, he always thought that there was one church. Um, Calvin had fatter fish to fry because his father had been kicked out of the church. Um, and so that's why, you know, Calvin was so big on the doctrine of, uh, election, you know, cause he's going, well, if my dad might, you know, basically think of him trying to defend the idea that his father is in, is in heaven, mm-hmm. um, because the church said he was not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that is a, that is definitely a, um, a prior commitment, but a good one. Okay. Like a good, that's a, that's a good one. Um, but the, the, the reformers, they didn't, they didn't get rid of the apostles creed. Right. Okay. They didn't get rid of the scriptures 
um, or the integrity of scripture. In fact, what they did is they flexed on the integrity exactly. of scripture, you know? Yeah. Um, and so they didn't think they were saying anything new. Totally. Yeah. Or, or, or um, they, they got more serious about the meaning of the text. If right. that makes sense. They weren't trying to change the meaning of the text. They got really big on the, um, you know, the, what did this mean to the original audience? Et cetera, just all the, all those things that, you know, kind of they've given us. And so these guys were not, they didn't believe that um, scripture had its uh, private interpretations. Right. They didn't believe that, you know, so, so, so once again, it's, it's, it's absolutely and totally incomparable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so calling, calling yourself, it, it's, it's like, it's like David Koresh calling himself a reformer. You know what I mean? It's like Jim Jones calling himself a reformer. It's, right. it's like, it's like any cult figure calling himself right. a reformer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, you know, so to, 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 you know, well, I know I've, I've seen it as well. You know, uh, Judaism, um, was, a was a reformation of, uh, you know, Egyptian raw worship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then Christianity was a reformation of, from Judaism. Right. And then, you know what I mean? And then, the, you know, the reformation was a reformation from Catholicism and, mm-hmm. and now deconstruction. And that's just simply not how it worked. Um, it's that's intellectual dishonesty. Um, you have to examine these things on their own merits. Is is Christianity a deconstruction of, of, of Judaism? Absolutely not. Right. It's actually a fulfilling of Judaism. Exactly. Um, and then it's something completely different. You know, Jesus comes and and he he fulfills the law, he fulfills the prophets, and then he kind of brings his own sort of brand. He, mm-hmm. he, there's things in the Old Testament that have, have been fulfilled, they've been completed, and now there's a new way of living, if that makes sense. And so mm-hmm. nobody's, nobody's done that, and nobody has the power to do that except Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. who is God, right? Mm-hmm. So all that to say, um, it's just not a, it's not a, um, anybody who says that is just, uh, they're, 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 they're trying to pat themselves on the back Mm-hmm. And lie at the same time, mm-hmm. and yeah. so a, a lie is a lie, and a mistruth is a mistruth, mm-hmm. and these things are—it's a false equivalency. It's just a logical—it's a logical fallacy called a false equivalency, and it's evident in the things that they are deconstructing, which are core Christian doctrines, um, to rebuild uh, not the same doctrine more more clearly understood, but different doctrines entirely. Right, right, yeah. totally. You know, like uh, doctrines like sexuality, mm-hmm. um, or even just the cross. the the the, the oh. level to which I hear that the the crucifixion alone was a state sponsored uh, killing, and that is all that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet to still call yourself some version of a Christian uh, is completely unfaithful to the New Testament. It's completely unfaithful to the way the church fathers understood what happened on the cross as they reflected upon it. Um, in in the centuries uh, following after, and it, it's it's like you say, it's just intellectually dishonest. And this is a conversation that we've been having a lot about the the deconstruction movement. Is um, you you know, and I know that your position is you're not one for baptizing the term, which I actually totally agree with, because um, I think that when people are trying to baptize the term deconstruction, what they're really just talking about is. Uh, actually learning the truth of the faith <laughs> and deconstructing, so to speak, their inherited traditions and, and things. And 
yeah. um, or maybe uh, uh, wrong beliefs that the scriptures actually don't teach. Yeah. Um, but uh, what true deconstruction is actually yielding is something that leads to uh, secular humanism, atheism. Ultimately, from what I can see, it leads to despair, um, which is where I see the 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 expressions of um, of deconstructionalist heading, you know, things like social justice and Marxism. I think that's all just going to lead to despair. It's a fool's errand um, in regards to what they're pursuing and how they're pursuing it. Yeah, a thousand percent. Um, the reason why, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not opposed to baptizing things, you know, like there's certain things that have to work, you know? So, so for example, like, um, we baptized, you know, the pagan, the pagan, feasts and we represented them you know we we gave them new meaning etc uh but we didn't baptize uh, what's an example of that well for uh, christmas you know like mm-hmm. the christmas is just um you know the shortest day of the of the year the northern hemisphere is, is just december 21st and in all of the pagan uh mythologies you know there was a, a one of the gods would die and then a, a, another was reborn on the 22nd and and so long story short, there's, and then, you know, they had various, uh, they, they all have parties uh, around the solstice, if that makes sense. And so Christianity, when we, when we, you know, when Ireland was saved or when the Germanies became uh, Christian, we kept the feasts that they had, but we did new things for the feasts and we had reinterpreted the feasts. But some of the things we, we couldn't baptize, you know, like we, we were, okay, we're, we're not going to sacrifice a child. You know what I mean? Like. Um, right. or we're not going to, we're not going to bless superstition. Right? right. Like, so, so, uh, and that's a good example of, of keeping the, uh, the good aspects of cultures and allowing them to have a place in, uh, in a Christian worldview. Um, which is, I know like what some of the conversation is about in terms of, uh, uh, a multicultural world and, you know, how does Christianity synthesize with that? Um, right. that's a good example. Yeah, absolutely. So with deconstruction, once again, like this is a, a term used by a French philosopher in the fifties and Derrida. the reason, yeah, and exactly. And, and, the, and these, it means something. So like words mean something. So like, uh, and the, the, the method is so closely tied to the word, right? It's, it's cynic, it's cynicism. It's the destruction of meta narrative. You know, all these all these different things, and so that's exactly what everybody who's deconstructing is doing. It's pure cynicism. It's leaning on the self mm-hmm. um, as a locus of interpretation, and then it's challenging all these meta narratives that we, we we clearly know to be true. So, you know, David Bennett the other day is like, you know, we don't deconstruct Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like we we don't. You know, like um, you don't have you don't challenge the meta narratives about who Jesus is. Uh, that are clearly revealed in scripture and doctrines that have been handed to us by the church, by people much smarter than you. So like it's once again, deconstruction, there's, there's no, there is no, um, there's no redeeming the term. Um, Right. So why don't we call it something else so that we can, we can distance ourselves between rugged individualism and the cynicism that is, that accompanies it and just go, Hey man, you part of a crappy church. Yeah, I've been there too. Right. So let's let's be a better church. Yeah. Let's not let's you know 
Uh, well, and, and that's that, something yeah. we were talking about that yesterday too. Is like a lot of the deconstruction doesn't seem to start in somebody um, really taking the time to sit back and intellectually look at everything they've been taught. Mm-hmm. It's I'm responding to being hurt mm-hmm. or a disagreement or right. a bad church experience. You but know what I mean? Yeah, a, a thousand percent. Or um, I have a gut feeling. Look, I, I think that things are ultimately so much more simple than that. Um, in in my course, um, defense defense against the dark arts, I do a section on sex, and I talk about how. Um, and this is anecdotal. Um, so just qual- to to qualify it, but um, almost every single majorly influential deconstructing theologian that I know in the last 60 years has had somebody in their family come out as gay or they've had a, a certain sexual proclivity that they wanted to they, they wanted to rethink because all of a sudden that was that was jarring what they had believed and they had this love for this person so so you know I mean, it's, it's happened to two majorly influential Christian women uh, that I know of in the last 12 months. Um, and, you know, Brian McLaren, uh, of course, that happened to him uh, when deconstruction was cool and, you know, all of the Gen Xers were doing it. Um, the emergent church. Totally. And so long story short, there's like, I, I could go down the list, but, um, you know, Jürgen Moltmann and his theories uh, you know, from, from the 70s of he's a lutheran theologian and often read often quoted his theory on the trinity uh well he's married to a feminist you know so like a, an outspoken uh feminist and so the, the 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 objections to the social trinity well the the objections to feminism uh were you know the trinity etc that's and so then he comes up with a different trinity uh, to suit his 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 prior commitments, right? So all that to say, um, I think that that the the deconstruction movement has, I think, number one, the the major issue is sexuality. Yep, that's the major issue, and how I should feel about sexuality, how my friends are pressuring me to think about sexuality. Um, you know, I had I had a friend DM me a couple days ago, uh, who is gay, not a believer, from New York City. And um, and somebody had asked me about uh, my stance on on homosexuality, and typically I don't really go there on Instagram. I make people, I kind of breadcrumb people and make them come to the ask you because I don't like being super positional without any context. And I, mm-hmm. I know that I have a, a diverse following, and it's like yeah, there's no relationship there, and so some things I'll be a bit positional on. It depends on how I'm being actually. A, a, at the moment but for whatever reason i let one fly and so my friend dms me and i'm this is awkward you know like and he's like you know you know that you know sexuality is not chosen you know like you know i was talking about like if you if you my my point somebody was like you know are are gay people going to heaven gay christians who say that they're gay and they're practicing a a gay lifestyle and i just said well number one if you are self-identifying with something that that Paul says, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Like, for example, if I say, if I'm calling myself an adulterer, I'm an adulterer Christian, you know, like, mm. how does that, you know, I'm a thief Christian. Well, we've all been adulterers because we've all committed adultery in our heart. Uh, we've probably all stolen at some point in our life. Um, but those are not identities that 
I claim anymore. You know, mm-hmm. like those are identities that I'm I have nailed to the cross and am nailing to the cross, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but if you're claiming an identity, like that would should, should be cause for concern number one. And then number two, um, you know, uh, what is the act? What is the what? What does repentance look like? And so, mm-hmm. long story short, so my friend comes at me, and I had. I had, I'm faced with a decision there. I really like my friend. I love him. Not a Christian. I want him to feel respected and honored, but I'm a Christian, you know? And so I had to make a choice. And I'm not like, you know, it's not like I lack compassion or, or, or lack, you know, sympathy for people. I have two cousins that are gay Mm -hmm. um, and I love them and I care about them and I don't want them to think that they're not loved and they're not honored and, and highly esteemed and that Jesus doesn't love them and that Jesus didn't die for them. But I have to be faithful to Jesus mm-hmm. and I have a higher loyalty. And my, my family are those who do the will of the, of the father. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so, but there's so many people who are unwilling yeah. to, to go, Jesus, I'm going to agree with you. And, what Even you, if it cost me something. Exactly. You count the cost. And mm-hmm. counting the cost, that's freaking discipleship. Not mm-hmm. people are supposed to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, get, get out of the gate. But we haven't taught counting the cost and mm-hmm. loyalty and fidelity to Jesus and his words. I, I don't remember the last time I heard a sermon on that. Mm-hmm. Ever. That's mm-hmm. pretty bad. <laughs> So I think that the deconstruction movement is happening. Um, you know, people are like, well, the church hasn't done its job. And that's why the decon- you're right. The church hasn't done its job. Mm. Absolutely. We let you down mm-hmm. for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. We haven't told you about this thing called the cross that you're supposed right. to carry. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sorry, you know, like, but that's really how we've messed up. Will organizations fail you? Absolutely. Are there going to be pastors who abuse 1000%? Are there going to be a-hole leaders? Absolutely. Are there going to be horrible small group leaders? Absolutely. Wherever mm-hmm. there's people, there's going mm-hmm. to be problems. But mm-hmm. one of the things that a church should be able to do is articulate discipleship and, mm-hmm. and extend the ideal. And we don't cancel the ideal because people don't live up to the ideal. No, mm-hmm. rather we uphold the ideal. Mm-hmm. And we haven't been upholding the ideal. And so then when, when there's a there's a whole generation of melts that come in and they're going, <laughs> oh, you know, like, you know, what? Like, you know, this is hurting people. This is spiritual abuse to tell people that this is a sin and da, 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 da. And, and so much of it. Right. Again, Which is, is what is actually often meant when the term spiritual abuse is being thrown around. Mm-hmm. And, and you won't just let me have who I want. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, always so poignantly yes. by our friend. Well, Nathan. and you did like a, you did an Instagram thread on that. Was it last week? And it was sort of like the, I think your way in was sort of McDonald's not being able to hire people because of, um, 15 bucks an hour or something like that. And it kind of just led you essentially into, in many ways, that conversation, right? Of, I think you used yeah. the term a generation of melts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Melt, a melt isn't a person who's been abused. A yeah. melt isn't a person who's who's, who's a who's a victim of of oppression. That's not what a melt is. A melt is somebody who who doesn't know the cost of discipleship, mm-hmm. and then gets angry. Pastors when they 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 when when for the first time they're hearing about scriptures, 
Um, and there's there's scriptures that are putting them in an awkward social position. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what I think that that's what deconstruction is about. Deconstruction is I'm in an awkward social position. Mm-hmm. How can so I, make I need less awkward? Yeah, I need to get out of this awkward social position. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm. I think a, a really great book that I've been reading um, is uh, called Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Mm. And I, I love that you that you do kind of zero deconstruction in on the, the main thing, which is sexuality. Um, and one of the things that the author does a, a brilliant job of doing is uh, connecting um, uh, the thoughts of various ph- philosophers and scientists um, to help us understand how we've arrived at the moment that we have. And, um, talks a lot about critical theory, which is something that you mentioned um, earlier. And I guess just at the onset, totally recommend this book. I think it's a great read for people to, to um, get into. But one of the really interesting things that he um, brings to bear is the idea of uh, early to mid-1900s thinkers trying to understand why uh, Marxism, in essence, failed. Why you know, why the workers of the world did not unite across all of the capitalistic um, hubs of the world. And essentially, you know, various theories come to to the surface there, Antonio Gramsci's hegemony and the Frankfurt School and critical theory. Um, And one of the really interesting things is that sexuality uh, was a a huge piece of that and how they understood what they viewed as oppressive power structures stayed in power was through uh, traditional uh, uh, views and practices of of sexuality and drawing boundaries around what is moral and what is immoral. And I don't think I've quite gotten to him like bringing the point out, but I'm pretty sure what he's bringing, you know, this section of the book to is the idea that uh, the sexual revolution um, is in bed with the idea of overthrowing what uh, these secular people view as oppressive power structures. Right. And one of the results of the sexual revolution is the undoing of the family. Um, because if I can, um, if I can make sex permissible just based upon, you know, my own uh, feelings and, uh, and draw very few lines there, then ultimately what I'm going to do is I'm going to undermine and devalue um, the the innate morality of a mom and a dad and and children. Mm. Um, and when you remove that brick, then the whole thing kind of comes tumbling down. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me, and I guess I bring that up just to encourage Christians to realize that... Uh, there's there's something so much more sinister and so much more deep at work in these conversations in society, um, and the, I, I see a spiritual element to all of it. In that the devil would love the undoing of what creates for healthy society, which is healthy families, um, and to deconstruct sexuality because we don't like the way we don't like the awkward positions that it puts us in. Does not stop at just making various forms of sexuality permissible. It does have a an overarching agenda. Um, from the guys who are the minds that invented the the ideas that hold up um, why the sexual revolution is a good thing, right? That's exactly it. It's um, 
That is uh, the, the, it's the authority. That that was the that was the occasion I think for so much of the. Um, I think that that's the. How do I articulate this? So in the fifties, you you have the the, the post. Um, you have the uh, postmodernist movement, mm-hmm. and you've got these thinkers, and they're challenging all these these these. You know, they're, they're sitting there and they're contemplating, you know, how power exists and how powers come to be. Mm-hmm. But the root of all of that, the root of, of postmodernism is 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 questions about sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's, it's and why should you know, why should culture say that I can't have sex with whoever I want? And, enjoy, you know, and so you see, you know, for the first 50 years of the 20th century um, in vaudeville and in you know, the artistic community and the literary community and um, just insane sexual exploit. Uh, Errol Flynn's and, you know, guys like that and um, guys and girls, actually. And uh, I've read I've read about it's, you know, postcode Hollywood and early Hollywood. It's just like it was a den of iniquity. Um, and, you know, just people, just artistic people exploring the limits Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the and the the no boundaries of sexuality, and then you have a intellectual movement that comes out of it to try to challenge authority, and that's exactly where we have we're we're at right now. We're in a society that's all of the the questions that we're having, all of the the challenges to authority. Um, it is rooted in in sexual experience mm-hmm. and sexual liberation mm-hmm. and it continues to be the the major like for me the issues of race and the issues of uh you know politics etc um though that's not the big that's not the big war you know like that's that's not the big you know critical race theory you know mm-hmm. like uh, as, as much as critical race th- theory bothers me mm-hmm. um and, and as much as it is unhelpful and actually makes things worse and mm-hmm. is, I think it's racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you in don't and fight yourself. exactly in and of itself. Mm-hmm. That's not the issue. The issue is going to be and in the coming days. And right now the issue is sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, we didn't, we just talked for about 50 minutes and we never talked about Christian nationalism. Are you guys? Just, that? No, no, not, not at, all. at all. We keep going. No, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> I do, do. Do you have some a few more minutes? I do want to see if we can define Christian nationalism. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so okay. So, what led me to even you know do this was all the deconstructionists, people who have these a bone to pick with the church and axe to grind, etc. They are posting on Instagram, and they're you know so there's this litany of my problems with white evangelicals. Okay, mm-hmm. and so. So I start to look at, okay, okay, you know, justice issues, of course, um, uh, women's issues, you know, uh, this patriarchal, okay. Nationalists, I'm going, Christian nationalists. Look, yeah, <laughs> what does that, that word mean? Yeah. <laughs> totally, like, what does that mean? Um, and so I began to ask everybody what it meant, and nobody would respond to me. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, literally, I, I DM'd, like, people that I would never ask you know like because i was just trying to get a, a straight answer and then i found out that there's a book that had come out 
Um, and in the book, um, you know, they're, they're, I can't remember the book right now. I think it's Taking America Back for God, I think is the name of the book. Mm-hmm. And they basically, it's a caricature of white. Right. And, and in the book, you know, they define, hey, you know, we, we called 1,500 conservatives and we asked them these 20 questions. And, uh, and then, you know, this is how they answered. And so, you know, they were xenophobic and didn't, they were nativist. And so it's kind of this drop down thing. And so what I wanted to do, uh, and then people started to, to just throw the word nationalist around, you know, like, right. um, uh, you know, you're a nationalist and nationalists are problematic. And so it brought up this whole thing. So my thought was, man, why don't we talk about a, what a, the role of Christian is in politics and what yeah. nationalism actually is. And then at the end of it, we'll address the caricature that this book has created around white evangelicals. And if some of these things are true and if they're not, et cetera. So basically, um, so in this class, you know, I talked about the gift of democracy. um, And, you know, where do morals come come from? You know, like morals come from, from, that's what, what Christians believe. Christians literally believe that morality comes from God. And we believe that, yeah, so all morality is transcendent. And so, and because legislation or politics had to do with people, that's what politics are about. And legislation is about people and thus making it moral. Like all legislation is moral. Should we attack this country? Should we borrow this much money? You know, should we create this law for children to learn about sexuality? Or should we create this law for, you know, to, to, to tax poor people this way or rich people that way. This is all moral, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, because we believe that morality is transcendent, uh, that we believe that legislation is moral, and thus we have a responsibility to be moral people in the countries that we live in, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm called to, to participate that way. Right. Then the, the ante comes up. So I don't live in a country where there's a king and the king just tells me what you know what to do and then i can kind of stand up to caesar and go well this is what the gospel is and so and i'm part of this kingdom no in the country that i live in i've been invited mm-hmm. to be uh part to set the of, standards correct to mm-hmm. set the standards and so so my uh civic duty is different than the civic so paul's paul writing to to you know to the romans about their duties their civic duties uh, in, in, in Romans 13, some, there would probably be some different things to write to people that would be in a democracy. Um, but the gist of the New Testament is obey government authorities, but also at times you have to obey God. And so we have to know which one, when to obey the, the authority and when to resist the authority and obey God. But long story short, living in a democracy as I do, you know, like it is my moral or it's my civic responsibility and because there's legislation going on, I believe it's my moral responsibility to participate in the democracy. So what that necessarily means is that Christians can hold seats of influence and power. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so that's a, that's a big thing. So it's kind of a call to action. Number one. Um, so then I kind of go through like myths um, in, in the course, you know, like a myth of, the, you know, there needs to be a separation of church and state. That's not what you probably think it means. Uh, the separation of church and state was that there should be no no uh, state-sponsored um, church. 
because that what was hap- that's what was happening in Europe when there was a state sponsored church anybody who uh, incorporated as another uh, brand of Christianity was seen as a uh, you know a rebel and then b you know disloyal mm-hmm. and ultimately persecuted mm-hmm. and so that's why you know they had um, you know the public education system for example was a Protestant compromise it was going look we're not going to have a an American uh, state sponsored church so so we're going to have a, a public education system and we'll have some generic prayer in there but it's just going to be a compromise because all the Protestants will just get along and you know yada 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 so kind of helping people to understand all this stuff and then uh, you know I've heard dude I've heard leaders think say that democracies democracies should be secular you know that faith should stay out of politics um, I had a pastor almost throw a punch at me for saying, I'm not kidding you, for saying that, because uh, they were saying that we, sh- we should not legislate morality. They were saying that to me. And the pastor was a black, a black pastor. And I said, is slavery, was slavery a moral issue? Right? Like, should we not legislate? Like, that's a moral issue, right? Like, so why would you tell me, you sit there and tell me that we should not legislate morality when, you know, when slavery is a moral issue. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it makes absolutely no sense. Guy got really ticked at me. But it's like, dude, you know, like, absolutely we should outlaw slavery. Absolutely that that should be banned. Absolutely we should outlaw racism and you know, stuff like that. So long story short, we just have some inconsistencies a lot of times as Christians because we right. pick and choose issues. And then we try to justify, you know, our, our voting for a party that, you know, will support something that's just uh, obviously morally abhorrent. Um, so, number one, every everybody has a national vision for their for their for their country. Christians should have a national vision for their country. It should be a Christian national vision. I want my country. I've been invited into this democracy to participate in this democracy. Apparently, 80% of Americans are Christians, like they self-identify. Right. So if the if the mass populace self-identifies as Christian, then of course that should be reflected in in who is being re- who's representing the populace, if that makes sense. Otherwise, the antithesis of that is yeah, as a, a participant in a democratic nation would be to hang your Christianity up, Christianity up when you go to the voting booth, mm. which no one is actually doing. You know, we, we vote according to what we believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I'm with you in the sense that I don't really see an alternative. I think a lot of it comes down to, um, uh, first of all, a, even as a, uh, but even before Christian nationalism becomes a topic of conversation, I think the topic of nationalism in and of itself oftentimes is seen in a negative way. Um, and people tend to equate that with fascism and Nazism and, um, and, but, uh, really in a sense, uh, unless you think that your nation should be a, uh, an imperialistic nation that, is seeking to dominate, you know, other nations in the world, mm-hmm. um, then we are all nationalistic in a sense. 
yeah. in that we we want to seek the well-being of the place that we live. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's kind of the Jeremiah thing, right? Like seek the welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in and of itself is a good thing. Like we should, as Christians, we should want the the place that we live to flourish. Absolutely. So Yoram, Yoram Hazoni has written a book called The Virtue of Nationalism. I highly recommend it. And it just gives you three options um, historically. The option number one is to be part of a small clan or tribe. And the clans and tribes, they kind of fight one another. And it's typically, um, it's it's violence in, your, in, in the streets. Um, and um, option number two, historically, is the empire. The empire, you know, uh, it's it's kind of it's violence at the borders um because there's kind of everything has been stamped out violently internally and they just they, they but the, the 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 empire is imperial and it just is con- constantly churning up uh people on the on the exterior borders and then um and then you know feeding the the engine if that makes sense and uh in the Bible, there's there's a third option presented, and it's the first time in history, and it's the nation state. And the nation state is a bunch of clans. There's 12 tribes uh, of the tribe of Israel, clans. They all have different stories. They all have different places where they live. They all have kind of different views, but they had some similar things in common. They worked on some large projects together. Um, they have a similar religion, a similar language, and they have a very specified boundaried state. That God tells them not to transgress. They told, "Don't attack the, the Egyptians. Don't attack these people. Don't, the, this is your allotted, promised land." And so the nation state is basically a group of a collective group of people who uh, have who desire the ability to self determine. You know, like we're going to decide what our destiny is, and they don't uh, they don't inter- they're not trying to to uh, attack other people. They're not trying to annex France you know, or, or bulldoze through Poland. Um, so any state that does that is not a nationalist state. Nationalism, mm-hmm. by definition, is this is our nation, and we, we just want to be self-determining, and, mm-hmm. and we're not, we don't want to attack anybody else. Um, and they have a standing army for defense only. Um, but unfortunately in the world, there are imperialist nations and these are imperialist empires and they want more. They always want more. Hitler uh, was a nationalist in some ways and that he wanted Germany to be great. And he was, you know, he, he was concerned for German things, et cetera, but he was an imperialist altogether in that he invaded the the proof is in the pudding. He invaded other people. That's not what nationalists Mm -hmm. do. Nationalists only ever defend um, or they sometimes maybe they'll come to the, the relief of their allies, uh, for example, um, which was the case for America in Korea. We were invited to Korea to defend uh, South Korea. Same case in Vietnam, only the Vietnam War sort of spun out of control. But initially there because we were defending by invitation our allies um, but all that to say, um, so we need to understand what nationalism is. It's not a dirty word. It doesn't mean that everybody has to be white or everybody has to be. For example, in in, in, um, in Israel, uh, there were kind of Egyptians that came with 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 uh, with Israel. Moses was married. Yeah, Moses was married to two women that weren't Israelites or Hebrews. He was married to a Midianite and he was married to an Ethiopian woman. Um, and um, so all that to say, 
there's a lot of people that you know they could they could but if you join Israel you join their story uh, you join their 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 religion etc and you'd be kind of a part of what they're doing and so all that to say um, yeah I think that Christian nationalism on the surface is actually a great idea vote your conscience vote your faith um, and hold the people who are representing you to the same standard I don't want Senator Tim Scott to check out his Christianity when he goes into the Senate I want him to be that passionate Christian guy who cares about right. the scriptures and cares about right because all morality is transcendent he's getting his morality right. from somewhere it better somewhere. be from the and scriptures. we all are exactly we voted him yeah. in to represent us South Carolina I'm not a South Carolinian but um you know he was voted in because South Carolina uh, Carolinians are majorly conservative and majorly Christian and Joe Biden should represent the people that voted him in and Trump mm -hmm. should vote he should represent right we expect our representative our, our representatives to represent the populace that voted them in etc so all that to say is christian nationalism a, a problematic phrase no it's not has it become a caricature yes mm -hmm. and, and i guess yeah. one of the caricatures that it's taken on is the is is something very different to what you're describing which is i guess kind of a like more than a like a uh an imperialistic American mm -hmm. mindset of like manifest destiny and this is God's country. And right. Like that. I think that is what people, when they are attacking the, the notion of Christian nationalism, um, they either a don't know what they're talking about at all and are just going along with something that sounds popular or B they mean that. Mm -hmm. yeah. What would you guys say? Some of those caricatures are like, yeah, some of those just practical examples of that. I, I think one of the things that I see is, um, like in a, in a real sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that I see is, um, uh, the taking of old Testament scripture about the nation of Israel and like just applying that wholesale to America. I, I think that's a mistake. Would you say? A thousand percent. Yeah. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. There are, there are absolutely, there are, you know, so John Hagee is fringe. John Hagee has never mm. been mainstream. There are people who love John Hagee and they, you know, give to his church. And I'm sure that the man, there's probably many wonderful qualities about this man. Um, but uh, he's fringe. He's not, he's not mainstream. He's not mainstream evangelical. Most evangelicals, um, you know, would, would uh, reject his, you know, like, for example, like the blood mooning stuff, you know, like that's, that's, uh, it's, a, it's a caricature in and of itself. I literally don't know. Um, I don't know one Pentecostal or evangelical pastor, preacher, somebody of, of any influence and um, and uh, and substance that is like pushing blood moon. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it's, mm -hmm. but it's a reality that of course there's. I'm sure there's many like fringe people that would sort of go, you know, you know, manifest destiny and that, you know, Israel is, is God's nation. We need to back them because they are right. the, that's the, the people of God and, you know, and conflating political Israel uh, with ethnic Israel or even spiritual Israel, et cetera. So absolutely. There's uh, there's, there, there are, I'm sure that there are Christians who are fringe, who, who believe that no Mexicans should be in America. I'm sure that there are Christians who are fringe that, um, believe that um, abortion is okay, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, like that. That's a reality. 
Um, mm -hmm. But most evangelical Christians reject that abortion is okay mm -hmm. or that Mexicans, you know, if you're a Mexican, you shouldn't be allowed in America, you know, like, but if you, if you are remotely for any sort of organization, you know, I'm an immigrant. I, I have, I pay thousands of dollars to be in this country um, through legal fees and all that stuff. And, you know, I have to get in the line and all that. But if you're an immigrant like me and you're like, you're, and you're going, man, like, I think that there should be some sort of process and then automatically you're a Christian nationalist. You, right. mm. you know, like, and so, yeah. Right. There's, and that, there's many, we could go down many of them. Examples. Yeah. And that's a good point. I think is, um, we've, we've lost the art of being able to have, uh, debate <laughs> about, uh, how things should be achieved. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a, a big yeah. shame. Yeah. My my friends who voted for for Joe Biden don't believe that that abortion is like I don't know any Democrat leaders who exactly I don't, I don't know I don't know any I, I have a ton of friends who voted for him none of them think that abortion is tolerable a good idea they all want it stamped out okay mm. but imagine me caricaturing you know all my friends who voted for Joe Biden right you know by calling them a you know, a Christian globalist or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. you're right. a Christian globalist. Why? And, and these, well, I called a thousand Democrats Christians and these are the answers that I, I heard. It's just mm -hmm. like, dude, that's. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. In the course, you use the example of that same thing. And you say, I don't, I don't call all of my friends that voted for Joe Biden baby killers. Right. You know, right. that's just not yeah. what I, that's not what I do. No, because it's not true. Right. 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 Like it's just patently not true. Yep. Um, they're, they're, they're not. Um, and given given two two political options, they felt in their in their conscience that this was a better political option. I may disagree with them vehemently, but right. to caricature them isn't helpful to Jake's point. Like right. there's no there's no there's no conversation, and then there's no nuance, and that's what we like to do. We we don't we don't like to have conversations. Yep. Mm -hmm. This has been a good conversation. Yeah, this has been great. This has been awesome, man. Thank you so much, Nathan. Good Thank man. you, dude. Appreciate it. Be careful, guys. Be careful associating with me. I am a white supremacist. <laughs> I am known. I am known as a white supremacist these days. Um, oh, in the man. Instagram streets. Yes. Yes. We'll do it. <laughs> don't don't tell all my friends who are people of color that I'm a white supremacist. Okay. Yeah, definitely. We won't. Yeah, we won't. Because <laughs> you've been blind to it this entire time. <laughs> you've been you've just been completely faking them out for the entirety of your friendship. Exactly. Or my wife. If my wife if my wife found out that she was married to a white supremacist, I would be Dunzel Washington. She would leave me. Unbelievable. Yeah, I don't know. It's slander slander is is unfortunate, but it is, it is what very, it is yep. what it is. Yep. That's awesome. Love you guys. Love you, man. Love you. Thank you. All right. We'll see you soon.